most commentators divide the book of Numbers into three sections based on locale. So they're like traveling through, and uh, we can base it on where they go when they leave Mount Sinai. They're at Mount Sinai and they're leaving Mount Sinai. We could, we could have a middle section where they're at Kadesh Barnea, and then we can have a third section where they enter the plains of Moab. And they're all linked together, together by these two sections of travel. Others see it as structured around two generations. Those condemned to die in the wilderness and the new generation who will then enter the land of Canaan. But there are 10 Torah portions in the book of Bamidbar. So we'll be in this book for approximately 10 weeks. More modernly, this book is divided into 36 chapters. So if you flip to the end of the book of Numbers, you're going to find 36 chapters, okay? But at its core, Bamidbar chronicles the story of a liberated people having to learn obedience, having to learn trust and holiness while living nomadically in this unfavorable wilderness. You've got to remember the wilderness, the Midbar, is the place where the fugitives go, the place where the outlaws go, right? The place who, for people who are on the run, just like our, our family of Israel, right? Deuteronomy 8.2 says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the Midbar, the wilderness, for these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to, what, to know what was on your heart, whether or not you would keep his mitzvot, his commandments. And he humbled you and he made you hungry and then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live on bread alone, but man lives by every that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Now we oftentimes put the word uh, word in there or every thing, but in Hebrew it reads just like that. It's just, there is no word, word there in the Hebrew language, in the, in, the, in the Hebrew text of this verse. But man lives on just every that comes out of the mouth of Hashem. We all must walk through this wilderness period upon leaving our bondage to sin. But it's during this time we have the opportunity to learn reliance, trust, and obedience. The test we encounter here in this wilderness, they strengthen our faith or they distract us from it. How many of you have ever walked through kind of a wilderness period wondering, what do I do now? Where do I go now? Everything I thought I trusted in, everything I thought I believed in as being true, suddenly that's been shaken. And I don't know what my identity is. I don't know where to go next. Those are the moments where God is refining you and teaching you and showing you, just walk right after me. I will lead you. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Let's read that. Go to verse 11. If you have a Bible, turn there. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11. For brothers... I don't want you to miss the significance of what happened to our fathers. All of them were guided by the pillar of cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And in connection with the cloud and with the sea, they were all immersed into Moshe. Also, they ate the same food from the Spirit, and they drank the same drink from the Spirit. For they drank from a spirit-sent rock which followed them, and that rock is Messiah. Yet the majority of them, with the majority of them, God was not pleased, so their bodies were strewn across the desert. Now these things took place as a prefigurative historical event, warning us not to set our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. 
As the scriptures puts it, the people sat down to eat and drink, then got up to indulge in revelry. And let us not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, with the consequence that 23,000 died in a single day. And let us not put the Messiah to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroying angel. These things, verse 11 says, they happen to them as prefigurative historical events, and they were written down as a warning to us who are living in the last days. So the book of Numbers is that book you're like, man, I, I really don't want to read a book that's called Numbers. Right? doesn't sound very thrilling. But the book of Numbers, Paul is saying, is for all of us to read and to learn from in the last days. In other words, as you read the book of Numbers, there's going to be parallels with your lives in the last days. And if Paul is saying that they are a lesson for them 2,000 years ago as he's writing that in the last days, how much more so today? Matthew 4.1 says, Yeshua was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. The wilderness tests us. It's good for us. We don't like it, but it's ordained for us to walk through it. We learn in the wilderness what reliance looks like, what dependence and what obedience should be like. So today I wanted to talk about, as we step out into this faith, into the messianic world or whatever you want to call it, there are some pitfalls and some distractions I have seen. Now, I've only been doing this uh, 11 or 12 years now in terms of like trying to keep Shabbat and celebrating the holy days and all those things. But in that short time, I have seen so many distractions and I have stepped into so many pitfalls that have wasted my time and my energy and caused me to injure relationships and hurt relationships with people around me on things and doctrines that were completely fruitless to begin with. So here is a list of things that I'm going to briefly go through. I'm going to spend just a few minutes on each of these. And um, I'm going to watch the clock. And we'll go through some of these. If we're cutting it too close, it's not a big deal. We'll just skip them and, and go on to the next one or something. But here's kind of a list. I'm going to go through sacred nameism. I'm going to go through the two-house Ephraimite theology. I'm going to go through fringy or divisive calendars and dates. Ultra-Orthodox Messianic Judaism. And then the anti-anything Jewish. You ready? Ready, buckle up. Now, I'm doing this with humility and fear in my heart. Because I know people and I love people who are into some of these doctrines. But I still love them. Right? And I can teach them truth and I can share with them truth in a loving way. But it is up to them whether or not they see some of the errors in some of these doctrines. But as a shepherd of DMF, it's my job to say, hey guys, psst, don't go over there. That's not going to end well, right? That's not, that's not a hill you want to die on, folks, all right? I, I've almost died on that hill. It wasn't worth it, all right? So I, I've, been, I've been around the block just a couple times, and I can see some of the fruit of some of these doctrines. And I want you guys to avoid them. The sacred name theology is a big one on my heart, and I just spoke on that a few weeks ago. Sacred name theology, for those who don't know, it's basically in a really small nutshell says this, that you should not use circumlocution titles, substitutionary titles, like Lord or God. That you shouldn't use 
the name, the holy name of God, the yud Hey vav you should pronounce it. Otherwise, you're taking his name in vain. You're profaning his name. And many times they'll go on to say that if you use circumlocutions like Adonai or Lord or God, that you're actually buying into a grand Jewish, it's always a Jewish conspiracy, a, a grand Jewish conspiracy to hide the name and to, to suppress his name. Now, God has a name. It consists of four letters. It's a beautiful name. And it is the conjunction form of he who was, he who is, and he who will be. Now, the yud Hey vav Hey. guess what? There is zero agreement in the scholarly world of how to pronounce that name. There's none. I counted 13 different options on how to pronounce the name of God. How does Yeshua use the name of God? Two main ways. He calls him Abba, Father, right? Aramaic for Father. And he calls him Kyrios, Lord. Yeshua employs those two main words to refer to his Father. In the Greek, it's Pater. Okay, it's where we get Father from. So there is no scriptural evidence of Yeshua ever using the yud heh vav -Hey or making it a stickler of his ministry. In other words, repeating or echoing the sacred name movement and the tenets of it. You, you're, you're, you're not saved unless you use the name of God. He never did Yeshua ever say that. All right. Now, if you use the name of God, great. If you're pretty certain how you want to pronounce it, great. But here's what happens with human beings, is we think we got a grain of truth, we think we've latched onto something, we're pretty sure about it, and then we want others to validate that in us. How do we get them to validate it in us? By getting them to do the same thing. So, true security looks like this. Oh, you disagree with me on this? Great, let's move on with the day. I still love you. But insecurity in your position says this, I know how to do it, you gotta do it too, right? I always say the best way to communicate truth is to humbly live it out and be ready to give an answer as to why you do. But I went through in this teaching right here um, from a couple weeks back, the, I spent an hour or so debunking the sacred name movement, but here's kind of a quick Cliff Notes version of that teaching. There's no agreement on how the name of God is pronounced. There's no evidence of Yeshua ever pronouncing the name of God. The sacred name movement misinterprets key texts involved with the name. Like, um, wherever I cause my name to be mentioned, I will come to you and bless you. Well, if you read the context of that verse right there, he's talking about wherever you sacrifice on an altar, wherever the tabernacle goes, and you bring an offering on that altar, I will come to you and bless you. That's the full context of that verse. The sacred name movement creates unnecessary division and unbiblical expectation and is by definition then a heretical movement. Thus, ironically, profaning the very name it's attempting to promote and preserve. Mm. Next on the line, next on the list, is the two house or Ephraimite movement. Some of you may have heard of this or been familiar with it. I stumbled into this early in my walk and it sounded great to me. It, it sounded very appealing to me. But here's what it says, and this is another Cliff Notes version, and I know lots of people who, who adhere to this theology. So I, I'm speaking from experience here. If you're starting to do things like keeping the Sabbath or some of the holy days, you may have some ancient Israelite DNA in you that is awakening inside you in the last days. 
And the reason you feel a pull towards these things is because you belong to one of the lost ten tribes of Israel. And your next step then is maybe to fast and to pray and figure out which tribe you belong to. Hmm. Sounds great. It sounds tantalizing. I want to, I want to belong to the lost ten tribes of Israel. That sounds amazing. As far as Gabe Rutledge knows, he's just a mutt of mutts. Right? I'm just all mixed up with all kinds of different things. I don't, I don't know. So I don't really have this identity. Like, I'm, I'm German, or I'm French, or I'm Scottish, or I don't really have that. I just have, like, I'm just a mutt, you know? I'm, I'm a canarly. You can hardly tell what my ethnicity is. Um, the United Monarchy of Israel, let me give you some facts now, okay? The monarchy of Israel became divided after King Solomon's reign and passed to his son Rehoboam in about 931 BC. Rehoboam refused to grant the northern ten tribes relief from Solomon's taxation, and they subsequently formed their own autonomous nation in the north, making Jeroboam their king. So the king of Israel, which was predominantly the northern ten tribes, was taken into Assyrian captivity starting in 740 BC, culminating with the seizure of Samaria in 721 by the Assyrians. Even after invitations to return, many years later, there was no large representation of the tribes ever returning back to the land in their former boundaries. This is a, a little map here you can see of the Assyrian exile. You see the purple? By the time um, after King Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel began to be split into two sections. You had a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. The southern kingdom predominantly became the land of Judea, where we get the, the term Jews from, Yehudim. And then the northern kingdom became called Yisrael. The, or it, it, was, it was around 10 tribes, but there were also a mixture of people living in the south as well that were Benjamites, that were the tribe of Asher and things like that. Levites as well. So it's not 100% like black or white. But we know that this northern kingdom was taken into exile. And they were also referred to in a lot of prophetic passages as Ephraim. Okay? So you'll see uh, Judah and you'll see Ephraim or you'll see Israel and Judah oftentimes referred to in, in the prophets. And this is really important to be familiar with because I believe that you, a lot of the prophetic passages re referring to the ingathering of the exiles will be completely lost on you if you don't understand the language of there's Judah and there's Israel, okay? Let's talk about some verses that refer to the ingathering of exiles because this is absolutely true. Hosea 8.8, Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the nations like a worthless vessel. For they have gone out to Assyria like a wild donkey on its own. Ephraim, which is synonymous with Israel, has hired many lovers, hired lovers. Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman from the region came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is miserably possessed by a demon. But Yeshua did not answer a word. So his disciples came and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out to us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So who's he talking about there? The, the, the Northern kingdom that was taken into Assyrian captivity. Isaiah 11, 11 verses uh, through 12. On that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel, and he will collect the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. A lot of regathering language there, right? The prophets are really obsessed with regathering. 
They're really obsessed with communicating to the people of Israel, God's going to regather you. That's a very biblical theme, a very good theme. Jeremiah 31, Hear, O nations, the word of the Lord, and proclaim it in distant coastlands. The one who scattered Israel will gather them and keep them as a, as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand that has overpowered him. If you guys are interested in this topic, I compiled a list. This is not a comprehensive list by any stretch of the imagination. There are probably, I would say, hundreds of verses, just like what I read, about God desiring to regather his people Israel and the nations in addition to them. But I'd like to put this in there. If you want me to email you these slides, let me know. Write your email address down on a piece of paper, and I'll do that as soon as possible. Or you're welcome to take a picture of the slide as well. So these are all verses that talk about regathering Israel, regathering the nations. It's a very prominent theme in the prophets, a very good biblical theme. All right, I'm not denying that whatsoever. However, the Ephraimite or two house movement is based upon speculation that because you're coming to the realization that the Torah is good and, and it's, it's not done away with all this stuff, that you will somehow have this DNA in you that is coming alive in the last days and God is wakening like an alarm clock and you're coming, you're, oh, maybe I am one of the lost 10 tribes of Israel and he's calling me home. But it's based on speculation. It reduces the people of God and the longing to want to return to our spiritual roots down to a bloodline and physical ancestry. It creates a fixation on race and DNA, two things our creator is not fixated on. 1 Timothy 1.4 says, I urge you on my departure to Macedonia. You should stay on at Ephesus to instruct certain men not to teach false doctrines or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship of God's work, which is by faith. We are a faith that prides itself and is grounded upon defendable and scriptural truth. This doctrine, this Ephraimite doctrine, two-house doctrine, is a hill that I just simply cannot defend. I can't. I need to see chapter and verse that you or I belong to some tribe like Naphtali or Asher, etc. See, when it comes to claiming ancient lost ten tribe identity, you'll have to wait in line behind some groups of people who do the same thing. Some what we would call cults who do the same thing. Black Hebrew Israelites. They, be they believe they are the lost ten tribes of Israel. They are a borderline militant group that is fixated upon Jews in Israel not being real Jews. They are imposter Jews is what they would say. They are you know, ancient pagan things that have, that, have, that have converted to this weird pollution of the Jewish faith, and they are the real Jews. They are the lost ten tribes of Israel, is what they would say. And I've, I've, I've met people that believe this. I've asked them their beliefs, their convictions. Um, yeah, here in Dothan, I've met people who believe this. Um, also, you have to wait in line between some of the tribes in eastern Afghanistan and western Pakistan, the Pashtuns. They actually would say, even though they practice Islam, some of them would say that they are the lost ten tribes of Israel. Also, you'd have to wait in line behind the Worldwide Church of God and uh, this man, um, Herbert Armstrong, who, who, who wrote about this, this doctrine called British Israelism, 
that said that um, the ancient Israelites are those of British descent. Hmm. Also, you got to wait in line behind our favorite dynamic duo, knock on your door when you least expect it, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They believe they are Ephraim. They believe they are the lost ten tribes of Israel. And I'm going to go on a limb here and speculate that the Ephraimite movement, the two-house movement, wedging its way into the Messianic movement is a direct result of many people brushing shoulders with either British Israelites, British Israelism and the, the Worldwide Church of God, or it's a vestigial uh, appendage, so to speak, of people leaving the Mormon church. When the prophet Joseph Smith set down the Articles of Faith in 1842, he included an interesting declaration concerning the tribes of Israel, which now reads in part, we believe in the literal ingathering of Israel, so do I, and in the restoration of the 10 tribes, so do I, and that Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent. Specifically, Independence, Missouri, which is just east outside of Kansas City. He says, in the last days, the other tribes will come to Zion, will come to Independence, Missouri, upon the American continent. They'll come there to receive the blessings of Ephraim, the LDS church. Mormons refer to Jews as Brother Judah and themselves as Ephraim. They've been doing that since the 1840s, before it was cool. This pursuit of physical connection robs a non-Jewish believer of the beautiful fact that God chose us despite the fact we were not part of physical Israel. And he has lavished all of his blessings upon us, even though we don't deserve them. Isn't that beautiful? That's the God I serve. He is not fixated on, you have to have DNA to be called my son. He's fixated upon, what is the condition of your heart? Hmm. It all boils down to this. The problem of identity has plagued the Messianic movement, right? We're not accepted by Judaism, and we're ostracized to a certain extent by normative Christianity. This often results in us wandering in this wilderness of an identity crisis disorder. Sometimes you hear people say like, I go back six generations and there was a man who has a last name that sounds a little bit Jewish. In other words, if I shake my family tree hard enough, maybe there, there will be a Jewish person that falls out. Don't do that. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, Our identity is in Messiah. We are His. We're sons and we're daughters through adoption. When the judge looked at my nieces and nephew who were foster children, and my brother and my sister-in-law were adopting these three wonderful children, the judge looked at them and said, You are their, their children as if you were born to them. That's adoption. Isn't that beautiful? I am a son of God as if I was born part of his family. I don't need to shake any family trees. I don't need to get a DNA test. I don't need to do any of that stuff. All I need is Messiah Yeshua. Period. How are we doing on time? I think we're good. Calendar issues. There are several different calendars on the market right now. 
The feast days are to be these holy convocations where we get together. We're commanded to do them together. If you follow a calendar that leads you and your family to do the holy days alone, you might be in the wrong. Think about that. You have a choice to make. Do I do them alone and break the commandment to make it a holy convocation and think that I'm right in keeping that date? Or do I go with the group and the collective and the community and do it when they're doing it and trust that the people and the elders of that congregation have researched it and decided upon this particular holy day, this particular date. This too is rooted in legalistic self-righteous spirit that says, if you don't celebrate this holy day, if you do it on the wrong day, you're sinning and God will not accept your celebration. That's not the God I serve. Right? Our mind frame at DMF has always been unity with the anticipation of his return and teaching. If DMF elders are wrong in terms of what day we celebrate a holy day, guess what? That's on us. That's not on you. You can trust us. You can trust us if, if we, you can trust that we prayed about it, we researched it, and we made the best, most scriptural decision we know to make. And that's on us. And that's wonderful and freeing for you, isn't it? So we have always opted to go with the normative Jewish calendar, the, the, what's called the Hallel calendar that has been kept for thousands of years by the Jewish people, that has kept them bound together around the globe as a people because they're all doing it on the same day, because they're not all following their own version of the calendar. They're all doing it together. And we've tapped into that, and we're keeping that calendar. And it's, it's simple, it's unified, and when Messiah comes, if we're doing it wrong, he will set us straight. But I find it hard to believe that Messiah Yeshua will look at Gabe Rutledge and be like, uh, you celebrated Passover a day late there, you celebrated a day early there, you did it, please depart from my kingdom, I don't know you. No, it's, we, we try the best we can with what we know, and his grace is sufficient for us. Amen? Here's, we got two more to go. Here's when I see another pitfall and distraction of the Messianic faith. It is a move, okay, now the Torah is good, it's, we should start doing these things, we start eating this, not eating that, and celebrating this, and not doing this, and it's like, what, what people group does that? Ah, ultra-Orthodox Jews, specifically, I see a lot of times, Hasidic Jews do this. You know, Hasidic Judaism, the one that came around in the 1700s in Eastern Europe, Let's, let's imitate them. Now, they have a lot of things right, but they also got a lot of things a little bit wonky. Where over time, their traditions and their religious patterns have become a burden for, to make the Torah inaccessible. To make keeping the commandments... How many of you have ever said, I eat biblically kosher? And they said, oh, so you don't separate... You don't eat meat and dairy, you don't eat a cheeseburger. How many of you have ever experienced anything like that before? Well, that's, that's like... That's what ultra-Orthodox Judaism does because they're trying to further that separation between like boiling a kid in its mother's milk and, and all of that. That's, that's through a series of fences that they put up around the original commandment. But I see people come into this walk and they get really excited about doing Torah things. And then they start, before you know it, putting on a black trench coat and black pants and a black hat and start learning Yiddish words as if that's the language that our Messiah spoke. 
and, and replicating a sect of Judaism that came around in the 1700s, as if, as if that's the Judaism my Messiah kept. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes you see they start reading and ingesting the words and the teachings of some of these Hasidic rabbis more so than our rabbi, and guess what happens next? The inevitable. Messiah is, Yeshua is not Messiah, but he's Meshuggah, which is a Yiddish word. And he's a false Messiah. I'm telling you right now, I'm warning you, don't go down that distraction. Now, there are people who live this life, who maintain a faith in Messiah Yeshua that I know, and they can walk that balance. Kudos to them. But I can't teach that as being the word of God. I can't teach that as being the faith and the walk that my Messiah observed and kept. Are you following me? Here's the other extreme. Well, let me read this verse before I go there. Mark 7, Yeshua says to the Pharisees, you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Ultra-Orthodox Judaism is guilty of nullifying the word of God in many different situations by their tradition. Let's not do that. Let's keep it simple. Let's keep it accessible. Let's keep it approachable to people. Let's not lay heavy burdens on people's shoulders that they themselves, or we ourselves, cannot bear. Here's the other end of that spectrum, that everything and anything Jewish is that's thrown out. Here's what they say. All of Judaism is flawed at its core, so therefore I'll make everything up on the fly. I reject all traditions or interpretations, and I'll just make up my own. Well, good luck learning how to read Hebrew if you're going to just make it up on your own, because Hebrew was preserved by the Jewish people, by scribes who followed very particular scribal traditions. We have our Bibles because of the scribes. Yeshua himself was a tradition-keeping Jew who practiced what we would call now Judaism. We're at the point now where we're okay with calling Yeshua a Jew, but to say that he practiced Judaism is still a little bit, uh, rubs the wrong way sometimes. But he kept some of the traditions, many of the traditions of the Jews of that time, but he bemoaned the Jewish people and the Pharisees for creating traditions and interpretations that are an affront to the written text of the Torah. Those that create an unnecessary burden on people and those traditions that have been elevated to a place that is equal with the word of God. Don't do that. So we do a lot of tradition here, don't we? Like this whole Torah scroll, like procession thing that we're about to do, the reading of the Torah, um, doing Kiddush. Uh, there's, there's a myriad of traditions if you start to look for them. And here's the difference though. We see a tradition and we're not scared to admit that that's a tradition. So, in other words, Gabe Rutledge doesn't get his knickers all bound up if we can't do a Torah service, right? Because that's a tradition. That's not the written word of God. There is no commandment that says you need to do a Torah service and read from the Torah and do all the processing and dance around and all this stuff. But it's a beautiful tradition, is it not? It honors the word of God. It shows that we are so thankful to have his word in our midst. But it's just a tradition. We're not married to it. So in summary, we should be proud that we are a multi-ethnic movement that spans the globe and is not based upon 
or predicated upon one's physical DNA. Let's remember that Yeshua is coming for one bride and not a splintered one. He says in Matthew 7, straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads to life and few will find it. I struggle, Gabe Rutledge struggles to keep the words of Yeshua of Nazareth and to apply them to my life on a daily basis. I have little time to ingest the words and the teachings of all those great rabbis who come before and after him. They, as wise they, as they may be. And I do study them from time to time. But I will always put the words of my rabbi and my savior first. He is the trump card. I will always read rabbis through the lens of my rabbi and my savior. Let's do this. Let's maintain unity in doctrinal foundations and pillars. So how many of you guys love the decor that Jackie puts up in here? Isn't it all the pictures and the, the frames? Isn't that beautiful? And I love looking at all the pictures, especially all the immersions and everything, and just reliving some of those memories. And I really appreciate her doing that. It, it kind of makes the room a little bit more personal, and it, it allows people who are new around us to see, you know, this is a family. These people have a lot of great memories together. So it would be like if Jackie and I got into this argument about where those pictures should be. How petty would that be? And then I broke off fellowship with Jackie and Howard because, you know what, I don't think that that picture, I think it should go there. Would that be petty or what? Yeah. So we allow ourselves grace and, and, and leverage in terms of doctrinal things that are not salvific and foundational. But if Jackie and, and maybe if Howard came in here and I was like, Howard, I want to remove this beam right here. And Howard, I think we got too many beams going across that wall. And this one is kind of unsightly right here. Can we just change it? Can we, can we just take all that out? Howard would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. time out. You're, you've gone crazy. No, we can't because that holds up this house. Now that's something that's different, right? That's a big deal. Howard and Jackie would be warranted in being like, Gabe, this isn't good. We need to talk about this. This is a fellowship kind of deal. But if I were to sit there and nitpick the, how the, the, the building is decorated and break fellowship over how it's decorated, you know how many churches split over the color of the carpet or the color of pews? So despicable, right? Let's give ourselves grace and practice tolerance and healthy discourse on its inner decor, the house that Yeshua is building. So in the wilderness, it's important we learn discernment, discernment over sensationalism. When Gabe Rutledge gets handed a book or you send me a link to a teaching on YouTube and in the title it has the word mystery in it, guess what, I'm gonna squint a little bit harder and I'm gonna open my Bible a little bit quicker and I'm gonna be like, Shh. I don't, I don't know how mysterious the things of God are supposed to be. They're pretty plain to me. Just be really discerning. There are some mysteries in the text. There are some mysteries about his return, the, how the end times will be. When you're in a wilderness, a midbar, there's no better time to be in the deber. There's a play on words happening there. Because the word daber, it means the word. And midbar, it means the wilderness. So simultaneously, being in the wilderness is, hey, be in the word. 
This is no better time to be ingesting these words. What did Yeshua quote when being tempted while in the wilderness? The book of Deuteronomy. He quoted the word while he was in the Daber. He says in Matthew 4, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every, and the Greek there is rhema, every utterance that comes out of the mouth of God. So if you're in a time of wilderness, get in the word. Don't spend, spend less time on the internet and more time in his word. You cannot go wrong, I promise. We're going to process the Torah, and let me kind of give you some uh, 